Directed by George Farnham in memory of his brother, J. Edward Farnham, in 1939. J. Edward Farnham, who died in 1917, was, in the words of the Princeton Alumni Weekly, an explorer for whom strange people and customs held a fascination. Uh, I suppose one could say that uh, David Gross uh, has a fascination for uh, strange worlds and the microscopic world. Um, the, the past lectures in this series have been John Gilgood, Isaiah Berlin, B.S. Pritchett, and many others. Uh, to introduce David Gross tonight, uh, we're lucky to have in the audience uh, another living legend of our times, Professor Edward Witten of the Institute for Advanced Study, uh, the world's leading string theorist. Uh, often viewed as an intellectual leader in the tradition of Albert Einstein, Professor Witten has received many top honors, including the Dirac Medal, the Einstein Medal, the Fields Medal, several honorific doctorates, and three years ago, the National Medal of Science. Please welcome Professor Edward Witten. So after receiving his uh, bachelor's degree at the Hebrew University and his PhD at Berkeley and a few years at Harvard as a junior fellow, David came to Princeton as an assistant professor in 1969. And <clears> there <throat> must have been an incredible period here. I wasn't here, as I'll explain in a moment. But those were the early days of string theory where David was one of the early protagonists. And there were all kinds of amazing um, experimental discoveries in that period in particle physics. And it all, uh, David uh, did a lot of great things, but it all headed toward a key discovery that was made by David and his student Frank Wilczek in 1973, which was called asymptotic freedom. That was the key step that made it possible to understand protons and neutrons and similar particles in terms of quarks. I actually came myself to Princeton as a graduate student a few months after that discovery, and I started working with David a year later. So um, I missed much of that period, but I was here for some of the aftershocks, which were still quite intense, especially when the so-called J-Psi particle was discovered at the end, near the end of 1974, which kind of sealed the deal in terms of asymptotic freedom and strong interactions. Well, David uh, has done a lot of other great things since then, the discovery of the heterotic string and the soluble models of string theory being two of them. He was a, continued as a professor here at Princeton um, until the late 90s, I guess, when he moved to Santa Barbara, where he's been director of the Theoretical Physics Institute. And I think now I really should turn over the stage. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and to give these um, Farnham lectures. It's uh, always a pleasure to come back to Princeton where I spent 27 years and probably the best years of my life as a physicist at least. Um, the 
title of this whole series is, as advertised, The Search for a Theory of Fundamental Reality. Can everyone see the screen, by the way? The lights need to come down a bit. The lights need to come down a bit. The power of words. <laughs> I wish I could do that outside. <laughs> well, the title of these lectures might seem a bit pretentious. The search for a theory of fundamental reality. So it's incumbent upon me to start by describing what a scientist, or more precisely, a theoretical physicist, or more precisely, what I mean by fundamental reality. Well, what do I mean by reality? I would say that reality is what we can calculate. An experimentalist might replace the word calculate with measure, which is probably just as good. Now, you might think that this definition excludes wide areas of inquiry and many deep questions that we're all concerned about, such as why there is something rather than nothing, or what is the meaning of existence. Well, so be it. Reality for a scientist includes so much of the wondrous structure of nature, and so many questions today, as we'll see in the especially in tom tomorrow's lecture and beyond, uh, that used to be excluded from our vision of reality, but now are part of it, such as what is the origin of the universe? And uh, in other fields, what is the machinery of life that uh, we're willing to stick with this limited view of reality? It's wondrous enough. And if you object to the word calculate and feel that in trying to describe nature mathematically, we're missing some of the beauty of nature, let me assure you that the mathematical beauty which we try, which we often find in our equations and in our attempt to describe reality as we see it, is so wondrous and so beautiful that uh, in a way that is hard to convey, really, uh, to those of you who are unfortunately innumerate. <laughs> what do I mean by fundamental? Well, this is a very loaded word. And I am a reductionist. And by fundamental, I do mean that which is at the core of reality. Uh, the belief that all physical phenomena in principle can be reduced to simple elements and explained by a small number of natural laws is the central tenet of physics, indeed, I would argue, of all science. Now, of course, this type of reductionism does not mean that all of the interesting questions in science, in fact, even the majority of interesting questions in science are fundamental in this sense. They are fundamental in other senses. And uh, 
Most of science, in fact, does not explore, engage in a search for the simple elements that lie at the bottom of all things. And still is incredibly interesting and doesn't rely on our deep understanding of the core of reality to make progress. But nonetheless, that is what I mean by fundamental reality. Einstein, who was a superb epigrammist in addition to being a uh, great physicist, could capture in a single sentence many deep thoughts, which is why he's often so quoted. He defined the goal of the physicist that the supreme, uh, uh, in one beautiful sentence, the supreme test of the physicist is to arrive at those universal laws of nature from which the cosmos can be built up by pure deduction. Einstein was quite remarkable. In one sentence, uh, he asserts the strong reductionist view of nature. In effect, he says that there exist universal mathematical laws from which are deducible and from which all the workings of the cosmos could, in principle, although of course not in practice, be deduced, starting from the elementary laws and building up. This is a lofty, ambitious goal and one that attracts many people to science, like myself. At the age of 13, it was really this goal, this desire uh, to follow um, this program that attracted me to physics, originally elementary particle physics, and now string theory. <clears throat> and that is, in effect, the subject of my talk, which will be divided into three lectures if you want past, present, future. First lecture will deal with the development of the theory of elementary particles, which begins only a little over a century ago with Thomson's discovery of the electron and Rutherford's discovery of the nucleus and ends really in the 1970s with the emergence of the standard model. My lecture will mostly focus on a, the uh, emergence of the theory of the strong nuclear force quantum chromodynamics, uh, and it will be a rather personal account, which is not inappropriate here at Princeton where most of the action occurred. The standard model is a theory of the strong and the weak nuclear force together with electromagnetism, and it is our, really our standard theory at the moment that explains all observed matter and all of the observed forces of nature, with the exception of gravity. In the second lecture, I'll discuss many of the profound questions that remain unanswered by this extremely successful theory and why we've been led to a search for a unified theory of all the various forces of nature, including gravity, and why we believe that a new quantum symmetry of space-time might soon be discovered. 
And finally, I'll address how these speculations have led to a new kind of theory, string theory, in which all the basic constituents of matter and the quanta of force are different vibrations of a single extended string-like entity. And finally, in the third lecture, I'll discuss the current status of string theory, its successes and its problems, and why this theory suggests that a revolution in our understanding of the nature of space and time is imminent. And I'll end with a discussion of whether uh, we'll ever achieve a final theory of everything. So past, present, and future. And if you find today's talk a bit boring, the talks get better as we go along. So let me start with lecture number one, the theory of elementary particles. In the latter half of the 20th century, a comprehensive theory of the constituents of matter and the forces of nature was completed. This is what we call, perhaps unfortunately, the standard model, should be called at least the standard theory, if not some more weighty name. This quantum theory of fields identifies the basic constituents of matter, the quarks that make up the nuclei at the center of atoms, and the leptons, such as the electron, that revolve around the nuclei, and explains the forces that act on the elementary particles of matter, the electromagnetic force, and the two nuclear forces, the strong and weak, as consequences of local symmetries of nature. It is the development of this theory that I'm going to talk about today, but mostly the theory of the strong force. One of the first unifying principles of physics was the atomic hypothesis, which is, was formulated over two and a half millennia ago, rather prematurely, one might think, by Democrates, who wrote his paper in verse, a practice which has unfortunately been uh, <laughs> gone by the wayside. And he wrote in his uh, physical review letter, by convention there is color, by convention sweetness, by convention bitterness, but in reality there are atoms and space. This atomic vision or hypothesis was clearly premature two and a half millennia ago, uh, but it has proved to be extraordinarily uh, powerful and successful. We now do understand that ordinary matter, such as a rose, which possesses color, sweetness, and no bitterness, as far as I know, when you look at it closely, is simply composed by a collection of atoms <coughs> and space. Well, by the end of the 19th century, many physicists, mostly theoretical physicists, believed indeed that this was correct, that matter was made out of atoms. That assumption allowed one to calculate properties of great collections of atoms and to explain the laws of heat and transport of energy, thermodynamics, <clears throat> but what was the atom? 
a little hard ball, a point-like object, no one knew, and many were suspicious of atoms since no one had been able to see them directly. They were much too small to be visible with the instruments of the 19th century. However, the view was prevalent that they must exist. <laughs> Chemistry, thermodynamics, there were so many arguments. The atomic hypothesis enabled one to understand many properties of matter. And finally, in 1905, Einstein gave convincing arguments for their existence by explaining the uh, erratic motion of pollen suspended in liquids due to the irregular motions of the atomic constituents of the fluid. So the atom was accepted by the early 20th century, and even before then, 1897, Thompson discovered point-like particles that carry negative electric charge, electrons. He measured their mass, their charge. Presumably, electrons resided somewhere inside these atoms. But what was the atom? The electric charge had to be balanced, surely, by some kind of positive charge which held them inside the atoms under normal circumstances. Also, atoms were much heavier than electrons, so most of the mass of the atoms was something else. And Thompson had a model of the atom which he called jellium. He assumed that the atom was a sort of a smeared out ball of positive charged stuff. And it was spread out smoothly and the electrons were embedded in this positive stuff. And he appropriately called his model the plum pudding model. The positive charge was the pudding and the electrons were little plums embedded inside. But no one knew whether this idea was correct. It didn't lead to much insight in any case. And you couldn't see an atom in those days, and you couldn't peer inside of it. The big breakthrough occurred in 1911 when Ernst Rutherford, a New Zealander working in Manchester, figured out how to probe inside atoms and invented a technique which is still at the heart of the way we probe subatomic matter. He threw things at the atom and saw how they bounced off and tried to figure out what was going on inside the atom in this way. He could create a beam of helium nuclei or alpha particles that were emitted with lots of energy from the disintegration of radioactive substances. And he shot those at a film of gold, and the alpha particles would interact with the gold atoms, scattering as they went through the gold foil and deviating from their straight paths. And then they would hit a fluorescent screen and make a pinprick of light, and Seated for hours in a dark room, Rutherford, or actually his poor students, Geiger and Marsden, would determine the pattern of scattering. It's roughly like someone outside the room trying to figure out what's going on in this auditorium by throwing a baseball into the room 
and perhaps listening for the yelps of the audience. <laughs> Rutherford expected that the alpha particles would only be slightly deflected. The alpha particles were shot at the, at the center of the atom, the nuke, at, well, at the atom, sorry, and the atom somehow would affect them. There would be forces on the alpha particles so they wouldn't continue in a straight line, but he expected that they would only deviate slightly from a straight line because the charge and the stuff inside the atom would be so diffuse that it couldn't do, couldn't affect the alpha particle very much. He assigned Marsden, his newest graduate student, the problem of sitting in the room for hours and hours trying to detect the very rare, he thought, occasion where an alpha particle bounced at a large angle off the uh, gold atom. He thought that Marsden, this was a very unlikely experiment to succeed and therefore appropriate for a beginning graduate student. <clears throat> Marsden discovered that quite often, in fact, the alpha particles would bounce back, and Rutherford was flabbergasted by that discovery. He said that this was as surprising as throwing, as if you had fired a 15-inch shell at a piece of tissue paper, and it bounced back and hit you. This was extremely puzzling in this Jellium model of the atom, when Rutherford concluded that the Jellium model must be wrong, that in fact all of the mass and the charge, or most of the mass and charge of the atom had to be located in a tiny pinprick nucleus in the center of the atom that had the power to cause a large deflection. But Rutherford went much farther than this qualitative observation and tested these ideas quantitatively. And this is where physics finds its strength. In physics, we do not just observe strange phenomena and come up with picturesque models to describe these. We calculate. We try to codify the models in mathematical terms and predict in a quantitative testable faction what we have, what we can observe. Rutherford knew the laws of electromagnetism. He knew that the negatively charged electrons would be attracted to the positively charged nucleus, presumably, and uh, therefore, that those laws of electromagnetism would, deter, would determine how the electrons would bounce off the nucleus, depending on, you know, what, what, uh, how close they came to the center of the nucleus. Using the laws of electromagnetism, codified 40 years earlier, he could predict how if that if all the charge was located in a small nucleus, what the number of particles coming out at different angles would be. He could test the, hypoth the nuclear hypothesis, and he did so. And his 
calculation agreed beautifully with the experimental results. Rutherford had thus discovered that at the center of every atom, there's a small, very small nucleus that contains all the positive charge of the atom and most of its mass, 99.9% .9 of its mass. The electrons revolve about the nucleus at a distance which is roughly 100,000 times the radius of the nucleus. If all of Princeton was an atom, the nucleus would be as big as my fist. Democrates was right. Most of what you see, most of you, is empty space. Well, with Rutherford's findings, the stage was set to figure out the structure of the atom, but this was tricky. The electron revolving around the nucleus much as the Earth does around the Sun, should radiate radio waves, lose energy, fall into the nucleus within seconds. Classical physics was unable to explain how an electrical model, solar system model of the atom could be stable. But remarkably, in only two years after Rutherford's discovery, Niels Bohr, using the new ideas of quantum theory of Planck and Einstein, constructed a revolutionary model of the atom which provided a precise quantitative description of the simplest of atoms, hydrogen, one proton, one electron, and a qualitative understanding of the periodic table of atoms and of chemistry, the beginnings of a quantitative theory of chemistry. In Bohr's model, atoms were stable since their orbits were quantized. The Bohr model provided the crucial stimulus that led to quantum mechanics 10 years later, which did provide, finally, a consistent, successful quantitative theory of atoms and ordinary matter, indeed, all of chemistry, biochemistry, life. A new end, of course, a new world of quantum phenomena which we continue to explore today and which dominates modern technology. But what goes on inside the nucleus? Well, this was hard to deduce since Rutherford's alpha particles did not have enough energy to penetrate inside the nucleus. Now, since all the mass of all atoms was roughly equal to integer multiples of the hydrogen mass, it seemed like they were made out of positively charged hydrogen nuclei, which we call protons today. And Rutherford, but there was something missing that doesn't actually add up. And Rutherford hypothesized the existence of an equally massive neutral particle, the neutron, which was finally observed by Chadwick in 1932. So by the 30s, it was understood that nuclei were made out of protons and neutrons and somehow held together by supposedly very strong forces. Not electric forces. If electric forces were the only operative forces, the protons, ah, the protons would, mm -hmm. that's the problem with these things. You go backwards. 
if only electric forces were operating, the protons would repel each other and be rapidly, the nucleus would fly apart. There had to be a new force sufficiently strong to hold these particles together inside a, at a very small uh, size. But what was it? Well, by the middle of the 30s, it became clear that there were actually two different forces acting within the nucleus. A weak force that was responsible for the phenomena of radioactivity, the transmutation of elements. In modern terms, this force turns one kind of quark into another kind of quark. So this, that was a radioactive decay. The neutron just decayed to a proton, an electron, and a neutrino. And this force uh, was qualitatively explained by Enrico Fermi, who devised a pretty good model of the weak force based, to some extent, on the analogy with electromagnetism, so-called Fermi theory. The other force was presumably responsible for holding the nucleus together. And it was much stronger, and we'll call it the strong force. Yukawa, in 1935, proposed, well, this force could be, again, analogous to electromagnetism. After all, electromagnetism was the only theory that people understood, with one difference. He supposed that the quanta of this field Unlike the quanta, the particles of the electromagnetic field, which we know as light rays or photons and are massless and give rise to a force that is long-ranged and only falls off like one over the square of the distance, he supposed that in the case of the meson field that is responsible for holding the nuclei together, the quanta for some reason were massive and that um, implies that the force is very short range, only operates within the nucleus, which is why we didn't notice it before, and he could predict, based on that assumption, the mass of this quanta, the meson that would mediate the strong force. And the discovery of the pi meson, <coughs> Yukawa's hypo hypothesized meson, with the right mass and the right couplings a few years later gave an enormous boost to this way of attempting to construct a theory of the strong force. Both of these attempts to understand the forces were based on something called quantum field theory, which has proven enormously successful in the 20th century. It is the theory of fields much as Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism describes the forces in terms of a field, a quantity that takes its values, that lives in all of space and tells you how strong the electric force and the magnetic force are at each point in space, at each point in time. And it is a quantum theory of such fields. And because the world is relativistic, and it was understood by then, it's a relativistic quantum field theory. 
That is the framework in which these attempts to construct originally the theory of the weak and strong forces, nuclear forces was built. But in the absence of real experimental input, little progress was made. The subsequent years led to much progress with newer experimental instruments. And again, the idea was to follow Rutherford's lead and try to learn what went on inside the nucleus by smashing things together. This way of doing subatomic physics has sometimes been compared to trying to learn how two Swiss watches work by smashing them together and observing the cogs and wheels flying off, measuring their velocities and their nature and trying to figure out how the watch works. Now, you might think that's a pretty silly way of trying to figure out how a watch works, and you're right in the case of watches, but it's the only way we have to figure out how nuclei work or elementary particles. And after World War II, when physicists were beloved by the U.S. government for having utilized the strong force to build the A-bomb, the government was eager to help them probe the secrets of the nucleus. And the first particle accelerators were built in California by Ernest Lawrence with private funding, but after the war, the government, uh, with government support, big science took off in a big way. This is the uh, accelerator, the Bevatron, which was the highest energy accelerator in the world, uh, <clears throat> which was built in Berkeley, where I started to do physics in the early 60s as a graduate student. Uh, it's right on the hills overlooking the bay. Uh, you know, that's a person, it's, it's moderately big. Today's accelerator, and these are some of the results from this or from uh, other accelerators at the time. You banged, in this case, a proton beam, just like, similar to Rutherford, into a foil of something, and you saw a spray of particles coming out, and you took a photograph in a bubble chamber, and you tried to analyze, just like in the case of the watches, these photographs, to figure out what was going on in the center of this eensy-beensy proton. And you get curves which look like this, and when you see a bump, in these cases, you've discovered a new particle. Today, we use machines that look like this. This is the accelerator outside of Chicago at Fermilab, the largest accelerator in the world now which runs at an energy of about a thousand times greater than that uh, machine at Berkeley, and is about a thousand times bigger, and unfortunately about a thousand times more expensive. Now you might think it a bit bizarre that in order to explore phenomena that happen at shorter and shorter distances, you need bigger and bigger machines. But the reason you do is that you need higher and higher resolution in your microscope. And accelerators are the analogs of, the, of microscopes. 
And to get higher and higher resolution, you need waves with shorter and shorter wavelengths, which means higher and higher frequency, which means higher and higher energy, according to quantum mechanics. You have to, to reduce the fuzziness that quantum mechanics dictates. You need high energy beams, thousands of times higher in energy than the beams, the energy of the particles that Rutherford used. And that's why high energy physics and high buck physics uh, is required to probe down to shorter and shorter distances. The biggest machine that's coming on and will be completed next year, and we'll have more to say about it, is the Large Hadron Collider being built near CERN. This is the CERN airport, to give you some idea of the scale. And this is the kind of instruments that are being used at that machine. This is a component of one of the large detectors that's being prepared for the LHC. Well, back in the 60s, the machines were small, cheap, but the discoveries were remarkable. And what was discovered when one banged protons into these foils and stuff spewed out, one hoped that one would see something interesting and simple like Rutherford did. Instead, one saw a proliferation of particles. This is kind of a history of how particles appeared in greater and greater numbers as time went on with smaller spacing in years. The electron discovered in the 19th, end of the 19th century, then the proton, the neutron, the electron's partner, the anti-electron, the positron, uh, which was predicted by a theorist, consequence of quantum mechanics and relativity. The second family of electron-like objects of leptons, the muon, Yukawa's pion, the mediator of the strong force, he thought, strange particles, and then in the 50s and 60s, a host of nuclear-like particles. Hundreds of hadrons, particles that seemed very similar to the proton and neutron. Nothing simple, nothing elementary about them. Well, this is sort of when I entered physics as a graduate student. Things looked pretty complicated. This was a period of enormous experimental advances. At Berkeley, a particle was being discovered every few weeks. Very exciting. Theory, on the other hand, was in an awful state. Nothing really was understood. Just the opposite of today. The strong force was especially intractable. And by the time I entered the graduate school in the early 60s, the situation was one of despair in a way. There were so many elementary particles and no sign that any one of them was any more elementary than any other. Somehow hundreds of elementary particles seems too many. And then there was no principle that determined the dynamics. These simple ideas of Yukawa didn't really work. There was no guiding principle to how to 
imagine the force between these particles. And furthermore, even if one did imagine what the force or hypothesize what the force might be, the force was so strong that it was impossible to calculate anything. So you couldn't test your theories, didn't know which to write down, and you didn't know what to start with. Freeman Dyson famously asserted in 1960 that the correct theory of the strong force will not be found in the next 100 years. Uh, Freeman is known for exaggeration sometimes. In this case, he was off by 87 years. Many thought, in fact, that to understand the strong force would require revolutionary concepts. So, of course, for a young graduate student like myself, this was the place to be, the biggest challenge. The main theoretical framework, as I explained before, was quantum field theory, the relativistic quantum theory of fields. And it was under strong attack, especially in California, Berkeley, and especially in Russia and the Soviet Union. In the United States, the main reason for the uh, attack on the abandonment of quantum field theory was that one couldn't calculate with it. American physicists are pretty pragmatic, and quantum field theory wasn't a very useful tool because people had tried, and the attempts in the 50s to construct theories of the strong force were total failures. In hindsight, all of this is quite understandable because nature was hiding her secrets very cleverly in a way using a strategy that we did not know. The basic constituents of hadrons, strongly, these strongly interacting particles, the proton, neutron, etc., were invisible. We now know that the basic constituents are quarks, but no one had ever seen a quark no matter how hard you smashed a proton into another proton. And furthermore, the charges, which are analogous to the electric charges, that the sources of the force of the chromodynamic fields in our current theory uh, were equally invisible. Instead, all hadrons, all these particles, seem to be on an equal footing. And that led my advisor, my graduate advisor, Jeffrey Chu, to propose the notion of nuclear democracy in which all hadrons, all these particles, uh, by then there were dozens and dozens, were equally elementary or equally composite. You'd say that one was built out of another and the A was built out of B and B was built out of A. That's why it was called the bootstrap sometimes. And Part of his more, even more radical bootstrap theory was that this framework of quantum field theory, which was seemed to be rather useless, was therefore deemed to be wrong. Uh, field theory, he's advocated, should be thrown out because it referred to things like quantum fields that you couldn't observe. Instead, you'd replace the theory by a theory of observables only. And the general principles and no dynamics would determine the probabilities of particle scattering experiments. You could 
determine the answer to all experimental questions without ever writing down a microscopic theory. A very radical idea, almost as radical as some of the ideas being played around in physics today that I'll discuss later. <clears throat> in Russia, Landau, the leading figure there, came to a similar conclusion based on different reasons. And he and his collaborators concluded in the late 50s by studying the behavior at short distances of electrodynamics, a theory, the one theory that we did understand as a quantum field theory and was well tested, that something was really sick about quantum field theory. And although they realized that this might not affect the ability to use quantum electrodynamics, in the case of the strong force, they were driven to the conclusion that the Hamiltonian method, which really, he really meant quantum field theory, the whole intellectual structure, conceptual framework, is dead and must be buried, although, he says, with deserved honor. Sasha Bolikov, my colleague who studied under, in the Landau School, has told me often how he was forbidden by his teachers to work on quantum field theory and had to do so with Sam's death writings, almost. Well, progress was being made even though dynamics was not at all understood mostly in the area of understanding the patterns of these particles, the perhaps underlying symmetries underlying these patterns. And in the 1960s, Gelman and others realized that the patterns they could recognize in this zoo of particles could be explained if they assumed that hadrons were made out of more fundamental building blocks which are called quarks, or called, called quarks. And if one assumed that there were three kinds of quarks, which were whimsically called up and down quarks that make up the proton and the neutron, and strange quarks, which make up strange particles, another kind of particles that were discovered, and that these quarks had differing masses and charges, and that the hadrons were composites of three quarks, a proton was made out of um, up, up, and down quark, and a neutron out of a down, down, and up quark, then many of the regularities that were observed made sense. It also seemed necessary, well, it seemed necessary to, to require that these quarks had unusual fractional values of the electron charge and no one had ever observed fractional values of charge. And later, to make sense out of this simple-minded picture, which was very simple-minded in the beginning, you had to also observe that the quarks came in three varieties, that each quark, like the up quark, actually had three different colors. This so-called color, of course, has nothing to do with ordinary color, it's just a cute label that physicists invented to label three kinds of quarks. 
So quarks had these strange properties, and no one had ever seen a quark. When you smashed atoms together, out flew nuclei, alpha particles, or electrons. And you smashed protons together, other particles emerged, but no quarks. The conclusion generally was that quarks were totally factitious. They were simply mathematical aids, mathematical devices that were useful, much as atoms were in the 19th century, to understand matter. Quarks were useful as a mathematical, hypothetical device to understand the, the regularities of, and the symmetries of nuclear particles. But they weren't really there. And with this attitude, you could ignore the apparently insoluble dynamical problems that arose if you tried to imagine that there really were quarks. So in, but in hindsight, you know, it's clear why it was so hard to crack these secrets. These quarks really are invisible, and you can't get them out of the nuclei. And we'll see why. And the charges, which we now know are these colors, there are three charges that are the source of the strong force, were equally invisible. Since the neutrons, protons, and all the other particles were always equal combinations of the different colors, therefore white had no net charge. All the secrets of nature were very well hidden. The bit turning point in this story really happened in 1968. By that time, I was a junior fellow at Harvard, and experiments were performed at, in this machine, this is the detector of the Stanford linear uh, accelerator that shot, unlike Rutherford, shot electrons at matter, at protons, and observed the scattering of electrons, whose physics we sort of understand totally. At that time, they understood it totally, off protons. It made it easier. It was a more delicate probe of the proton. Now again, just like in the case of Rutherford, this experiment most people suspected would be boring and would tell us nothing. But history repeated itself. And the experimenters were very surprised, once again, just like Rutherford, to find that when they shot electrons at these protons, they bounced back as often at large angles, much more often than they expected, just as Rutherford had discovered 57 years before in the case of atoms. And again, the conclusion was similar. The proton looked at least for the very short intervals of time that the electron was inside the proton as if it was made out of point-like constituents, just like the atom was at a point-like nucleus. And furthermore, it appeared that these point-like constituents were just elementary particles moving around freely, not strongly bound or interfering with each other. Now, I'd been very interested in these experiments even before they were performed, and with colleagues, with Kurt Callan, 
who is here in the audience, derived various formulas that could be tested in these experiments. We said, let's assume very naively that the proton is made out of quarks and that these aren't uh, interacting strongly and that we could just calculate naively and what the experimenters might see and test the hypothesis. And the experimental results agreed with that, with these formulas, or perhaps with the hypothesis that the point-like constituents in the proton behaved like quarks. And this experiment is now regarded as the discovery experiment for, uh, of quarks and its leaders won the Nobel Prize in physics for discovering the quarks. Of course, at the time, by and large, people believed that quarks were hypothetical mathematical objects that didn't exist. So what was being confirmed originally was thought to be the existence of hypothetical mathematical objects that don't exist. Well, about this time, or a year later, I came to Princeton, and I actually have a uh, uh, year or two later the faculty photo of the 72, 73, uh, and some people in the audience will recognize themselves. Princeton was a wonderful place then, as, um, as Ed referred to. Uh, Murph Goldberger and Sam Treeman, in particular, had created uh, a vibrant group of particle theorists, and uh, it was a very exciting time and a very exciting group of people to be associated with. Here is a blow-up. You're trying to find me or yourself, uh, here is a blow-up of three of us. This is Eugene Bigner, who was the grand old man of the physics department at the time. And this is Curtis Callan, somewhere in the audience. And this is myself with a lot more hair. <laughs> And this is a picture of Kurt and I working in my office in Jadwin at the time, or shortly after where I shaved the beer. At this time, I was deeply immersed and had been for about four years in a search for trying to explain these results of the slack experiments. The quantum theory of relativistic fields, as I said, didn't seem to be very useful. But it was the only thing one had, and we explored it, many of us did, to try to understand how you could possibly have, in the case of these strong forces, how the proton could look like it was made out of weakly interacting quarks that somehow never escaped from the nuclei. String theory, for example, at the time was devised to provide a revolutionary approach to the strong force. String theory, uh, which we'll come to tomorrow, uh, was not invented by mathematicians, was not invented to unify the forces of nature, was not even invented as a string theory. It 
started as a phenomenological guess of the kinds of mathematical structures one would need to explain the strong force, totally outside the realm of quantum field theory. But it actually didn't work very well in explaining these results from the Stanford Linear Accelerator. So after playing with it for some time, I went back to field theory, where I couldn't find the answer either. There had to be a strong force between quarks if they existed so that you couldn't pull them out. But the experiment showed that the force was weak, at least when you looked at it at very short distances and at short times. Now, we knew by at that time, we understood by then, that the forces of nature vary with distance. That is a very interesting phenomena that occurs in quantum mechanics and in quantum field theory in particular because of something called vacuum polarization. So let's talk about nothing or the vacuum. Most people's picture of the vacuum is this, nothing. You take everything out, nothing is left, that's the vacuum. But in quantum mechanics, the vacuum is, is not empty or static. It's full of vibrating fields and virtual particles, pairs of particles and antiparticles that pop into existence and then disappear. Now, this is essentially due to the famous uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics, which says that if you try to observe a system in its rest state, its ground state, you disturb it. Any measurement, any observation disturbs the system and thus it moves. And therefore it's always moving, undergoing quantum fluctuations. Of course, let's try to probe it. Probe it, it moves, so it's moving. That's sort of why you always have vacuum fluctuations. Should think of the va quantum vacuum as a medium like water or air. Here's a picture of the quantum vacuum in QCD, where we can now calculate what it looks like using massive computers. And this is a, picture, a measure of the fluctuating gluodynamic fields, fields in the uh, vacuum in the standard model, where the chromodynamic fields overwhelm everything else. You see, it's not static or quiescent, a lot is going on. And that affects the properties of matter and uh, the forces between uh, elementary particles. So, for example, in the theory that everyone understood, quantum electrodynamics, the quantum theory of Maxwellian electrodynamics, their vacuum is a dielectric medium. It screens charges. Because of these fluctuations, you should think of the vacuum, the empty space in quantum electrodynamics, as having these virtual dipoles, little electrical dipoles uh, with positive and negative charges uh, in the vacuum. And normally they're randomly oriented, but if you insert a charge into the system, they will screen, they'll respond to that inserted charge and screen it. 
reduce the charge because these negative charges are closer to the positive charges so that in quantum electrodynamics, if you go out farther at large distances, there's more screening and the force gets weaker. If you go to shorter distances, there's less screening, the force gets bigger. Well, if you're going to try to use the properties of the vacuum to explain why a force might, between quarks, which must be big inside the nucleus, gets weaker at short distances, this theory isn't very good. The opposite happens. And it was thought by just about everybody that this was a phenomena common to all quantum field theories. This is the reason, in effect, that Landau gave up on quantum field theory. If you take this to the extreme and try to make the, you conclude that the, before you get to zero distance, the force becomes infinite, which is crazy. So Landau concluded that the theory, like QED, must be sick. In fact, concluded that all quantum field theories are sick. Well, I tried to see whether this, in fact, meant that quantum field theory, that Landau was right. And I tried with colleagues to show that we needed this phenomena, which didn't happen, that the force got weaker at short distances, which we later called asymptotic freedom, to explain why you could have point-like particles uh, at short distances. And we almost showed that all theories indeed don't have this property where the force gets weaker at short distances or asymptotic freedom. The one exception to that line of proof were so-called gauge theories, Yang-Mills theories, generalizations of the theory of electromagnetism, in fact, which have turned out to be the basis of all the forces of the standard model. These theories were invented in the 1950s and revived in the late 1960s when they were used to construct a theory, which I don't have time to describe, of the other nuclear force, the weak force. They are extensions of electromagnetism wherein the source of the fields um, and the force are generalizations of the electric charge. The difference is that in the case of electromagnetism, there's only one kind of charge, electric charge. It comes with positive, negative, but there's only one electric charge. In the case of these more general theories, there are many charges. Two, three, four, as many as you want. But just like electromagnetism, naively, the quanta of these fields should be massless, like light rays. And they've never been observed. And that's one reason it took almost 15 years before these theories found a successful application. In the case of the weak force, one finally understood a mechanism that made those analogs of light rays, photons, heavy. And these were finally observed, these heavy photons, W and Z particles, in experiments in 1983. 
Well, with Frank Wilczek, who started his graduate work with me in 1972, we tried to close that last hole and calculate the vacuum polarization effects of these theories, which are the only ones that remained outside the program, my program of killing quantum field theory. These theories were very new, and at that time it was a hard calculation. Today it's a homework problem in courses in quantum field theory. We found, well, here's a formula which won't mean much to you. There are effects in these theories which come in and have the opposite effect to QED due to the fact that the quanta of light, the analog of the quanta of light, the quanta of the fields here called gluons, themselves are charged, have they are the source of the field that they themselves mediate. We found, in fact, much to my surprise, that instead of no field theory can explain this point-like behavior called scaling, there exists a unique, only one kind of field theory that could explain scaling. And this is the paper we wrote in which the uh, important things are, out, are underlined, we noted that we found that these theories possess the remarkable feature, perhaps unique, indeed unique among renormalized, uh, among, well, indeed unique of asymptotically approaching free field behavior. Free meaning the force turns off asymptotically at short distances, that's why we call them asymptotically free theories. And they will exhibit this kind of point-like behavior observed in experiments. And we therefore suggest that one should look to a non-abelian gauge theory, Yang-Mills theory of the strong interactions to provide the explanation for this kind of point-like behavior, scaling, which has so far eluded field theoretic understanding. So, you know, I compared this, this uh, discovery, my feeling, to that of an atheist who walks along and suddenly hears a voice from a burning bush. Overnight, I switched from being an atheist to a true believer, and not, not in quantum field theory, but in very specific kind of quantum field theory that could explain this crucial experimental fact. And it was immediately obvious to us what that theory had to be. There was really no choice. The dynamics had to be governed by this kind of non-abelian gauge theory, this generalized electrodynamics whose quanta are gluons. And the matter we already knew from experiment, from the success of these formulas, that it had to be made out of quarks, and it had to be three colors, and the colors were the obvious source of the gluons. It all fit together. As we said, one particularly appealing model is based on three triplets of fermions, that's three colors, with SU, well, three kinds of quarks with an SU3 color gauge group to provide the strong interactions, which is QCD. 
Now, why is QCD anti-screening? Why does it do the opposite of all other theories that made sense? Well, we can understand this uh, today in a very physical fashion, although it wasn't so clear in 1973, by considering the magnetic screening properties of the vacuum. So in classical physics, all media are diamagnetic, like dielectrics, because classically all magnets arise from electrical currents. And if you set up an if you put in a magnetic field, the currents try to oppose that and decrease that field. So again, you have screening, magnetic screening. That's Lenz's law. But in quantum mechanics, you can have something called paramagnetism, because you can because of quantum mechanics, you can have objects with an inherent spin, like the electron. Or, in the case of these non-abelian gauge theories, these, these generalizations of electromagnetism, the quanta of the force themselves, these gluons, are charged and spinning, and they behave like permanent magnetic uh, magnets. So you can think about the vacuum and QCD magnetically as a system of permanent magnets. And if you insert into this system an external magnet, all these permanent magnets line up parallel to it and increase the force that's observed far away because there are more of these magnets pointing upwards. So in QCD, the QCD force increases at large distances. And conversely, when you go to shorter distances, decreases just what we needed to explain why when you look at the quarks inside protons, short times, short distances, the force turns off and eventually goes to zero, you go to zero distance. All of this because the vacuum is fluctuating like mad, and this is a picture using the theory of what the vacuum looks like with a certain measure to topological charge density. How does this affect the force between the quarks? Well, again, I can show you what it really looks like using the theory and lattice gauge theory calculations, which we can turn into a movie. And here is a movie of what happens to the field between a quark and an anti-quark as they're pulled apart. Now, unfortunately, I don't know how I use PowerPoint to stop the movie. So we, when you see, if you look carefully, you'll see that when the quark and anti-quark are close together, field distribution is rather spherical. If you pull them apart, the fields get squeezed by the properties of that fluctuating vacuum to a tube. And that's why the energy increases linearly as you pull the quarks together, so that to pull it to infinity would cost an infinite amount of energy. That's why you can't liberate the quarks when they're gone. So this is the property that causes the force to get to remain constant as you pull the quark things apart. Uh, notice, by the way, that when the quarks are pretty far apart, what's between them, this is where all the energy is located, is looks very much like a string. 
That's why it wasn't surprising in retrospect that string theory was accidentally invented as a, an attempt to understand the behavior of such quark-anti-quark bound states. There is a kind of string in QCD, and I'll say more about that later. In the Nobel Prize uh, poster that the Swedish Academy came up with, there's this beautiful picture of three quarks inside a proton trying to get out with all their might and being bound by the chromodynamic force. Well, they got it wrong. This is what it really looks like. This, again, is a lattice gauge theory movie of what happens when you pull three quarks apart. You see where all the energy is bound. Again, it's in these strings which meet at a point in the center. Beautiful picture. And it explains, you can see why you can just never pull them out. And, well, we didn't understand that in detail, but we did understand uh, immediately that the fact that the force between the quarks gets stronger as you go to large distances might mean that it is so strong that it suppresses all but that you can never pull the quarks out and the only things you'd be left with would be these things where the color is neutralized. In other words, what was then called infrared slavery, the flip side of asymptotic freedom could explain why quarks are permanently confined inside um, hadrons. So anyway, it was suddenly clear to me and to Frank and to pretty soon to a whole bunch of people that QCD was consistent with everything we knew about the strong interactions and could contain everything that we'd learned in the past decades and that asymptotic freedom could explain the point-like behavior and the flip side could explain why we never saw quarks and so on. The theory explained, if you want, both sides of the paradox that had perplexed me for five years, the free behavior of quarks at short distances, their permanent confinement at large distances. But most important was the fact that one could calculate. Since the force grew weak at short distances or high energies, it was easy to do calculations and predictions as to what experimenters would find when they went to higher and higher energies, shorter and shorter distances. And we started immediately to calculate. So, you know, when you people, reporters always ask me, what, when you made this discovery, which was kind of a eureka discovery, doesn't always happen in physics, you suddenly have an, you know, do a calculation, things become very clear. Did you go out and celebrate? And I said, no, of course not. We went out and calculated. There are so many things to calculate. The calculations have indeed, over the years, provided enormous understanding of the theory, especially at short distances, where it becomes easy because the force gets weak. At large distances, the task is harder and many problems remain. Experimental confirmation became slowly, but along the way there were very dramatic discoveries. The J-Psi particle was one of them, but one of the most dramatic and pleasing was the discovery of jets, 
and the ability to see quarks. I told you, you can never isolate a quark, but you can see a quark. Here are three quarks. Now, what this is, is an event which is recorded at LEP, the Opal experiment. That's LEP, isn't it? Right. Uh, where this is what really happens. Electron, positron come together. They turn into a quark and an anti-quark. That's this jet and this jet. And then one of the quarks radiates off a gluon. Now, of course, we don't see the quarks directly. What we see is this spray of nuclear-like particles that the quarks eventually turn into. But this spray of energy and momentum define the energy momentum of the underlying quark event. If you go to an experimentalist sitting in a control room looking at the data coming out of a high energy detector, they will tell you, there's a quark, that's a quark jet, that's a quark jet, and I recognize this as a gluon jet. Seeing is believing, but also believing is seeing. We believe in the physical reality of quarks and gluons because we believe in the underlying theory, the asymptotic freedom of their interaction. So using that, we can see quarks and gluons. And if you think this scene is less direct or meaningful than the way we see electrons or atoms or even cups, you should try to look at the way neuro neuroscientists try to figure out how it is that we can see anything. An enormous amount of theory and model building goes into, is wired into our brains in everything we see, just as it is in how we see quarks and gluons here. So we see quarks and gluons indirectly through the effects they have on our measuring instruments, coupled with our understanding of their dynamics. We even understand nowadays that we could see them more directly if we were to do an experiment where we heated this room to 100 billion degrees, in which case the nuclei that you're made out of would melt into a plasma of quarks and gluons, which would be quite visible, although you wouldn't be here to see them. The basic prediction of QCD, of asymptotic freedom, is this decrease of the force. And that is slow, and it took years for it to be confirmed. This is the experimental evidence for asymptotic freedom 16 years after its discovery. No wonder it took so long for the Nobel Prize. This is pretty not so good, right? But in recent years, it's gotten better and better. And this is 2004, where it began to be reasonable. And this is sort of a compilation of all world data. And all world data, by the way, means hundreds of experiments, thousands of people working on this for years and years. It's an incredible amount of effort of many, many people, theorists and experimentalists. And this is the agreement with the predictions of the theory. Even more impressive are the agreements of the complete theory with all observed facts. 
And one way of saying it is, can all the effects that we can quantitatively understand and predict in QCD be described by the theory with one adjustable number, which really is a scale, but sometimes referred to as a coupling, the strength of the strong interaction at some energy scale. And this is the agreement. Again, dozens and dozens of experiments all over the world with thousands of people being involved for many years. And the answer with, you can see now, accuracy of uh, about a percent is incredible. Which, of course, leads to things like this. And here is the, uh, their picture again of a nucleon. You, you get a, in addition to a metal, you get a beautiful original uh, pick, uh, drawing by a Swedish artist, in this case of three quarks bound, permanently confined inside the proton. This is sort of like the picture I showed you on the computer, abstractly. And most pleasing, in a sense, from my point of view, is that we can now calculate the masses of the elementary particles, all of them, with a few inputs to an uh, incredible accuracy, which is improving dramatically over uh, in recent years, the accuracy of a few percent. And even begin to make predictions of masses of particles that are just now being discovered. It's really remarkable. Now, I like, of course, to boast about QCD, and there's some aspects of it which make it, before our ambitions got a lot stronger, very much of a perfect theory. What I mean by that is that unlike other theories we've always had in physics, which when you went and extrapolated the theory to shorter and shorter distances, you ran into some kind of disaster or another. It's true just about every theory we've ever had. It's also true of Einstein's theory. It's not true in QED, QCD. You extrapolate to short distances or higher energies, things get simpler. Nothing. Things become free, non-interacting, trivial. No new physics, if it was just QCD, would be expected. In that sense, it would be sort of complete, in a sense that we know of no other example. And there is, in a sense, in QCD, no adjustable parameters. The quarks have a little bit of mass, which has nothing to do with the strong force. It has to do with the mechanism of the breaking of the symmetry of the weak force. But aside from that, there are no parameters in QCD. There's just a scale that, in which you measure masses. And everything can be calculated in terms of that scale. It's quite a remarkable phenomenon. It's quite evident when you think about the masses of the elementary particles, the mass of the proton, the mass of the neutron, the mass of the nuclei of the atoms you're made out of. In other words, your weight. Where does it come from? 99% of the mass of the nucleon of the proton pictured here is not, doesn't come from any mass you put in of the stuff you put into the proton. The quarks weigh almost nothing. You could ignore their masses completely. It all comes from the fact that these quarks and the glue is being confined, held together by this strong force. And so the quarks are rattling around inside this confined region, and it's their kinetic energy and the energy of these confined fields that are holding them together 
that, according to Einstein's famous formula, which should be read this way, mass equals energy over C squared, that's what gives the mass of the proton. 99.9% .9 of your mass is energy. The kinetic and energy of the quarks rattling around confined together and the energy of the gluon field. And you calculate this, therefore, in terms of nothing. That's why there are no arbitrary parameters. Well, I didn't have time, I've already overused my time, as you know, uh, to talk about the other important component of the standard model that was developed at the same time and, again, uh, is a nuclear force. But let me just summarize the whole standard model since tomorrow's lecture will start from the standard model and what remains unanswered. And this is a little list of the particles um, that play a role in the standard model, all the particles of nature that we have observed to date. They are the quarks and the leptons. The up and down quarks that make up the neutron and the proton and the electron that revolves around it. The electron has a friend, a neutral, very light particle, the neutrino, and that makes up one family of quarks and leptons. We've discovered there are two other families. Uh, a long time ago, the muon, the, part, the cousin of the electron, was discovered, another kind of quark. Then the charmed quark, another family, and then in the uh, late 70s the, and finally the 80s and 90s, the third family of quarks and leptons. We think sort of that's all or perhaps all before the Pandora box of a new world opens, but as far as the standard model goes, we have three families of these quarks that make up nuclei, electrons, and these neutral that accompany them. And then there are the forces of nature, which we actually understand better than the constituents of matter. And they, there are quanta of these forces, which are the particles of uh, the associated with the fields that mediate the force, the photon, the gluon of the strong force, and the uh, quanta of the weak force, the Z and W mesons, which, I, as I told you, are massive. So we have the three forces of the standard model are the electromagnetic force of Maxwell, uh, which is mediated by the photon and which operates, is sourced by the electrical charge of these particles, all of which, except for the neutrino, have electric charge. Similarly, the strong interaction, which is mediated by the gluon, the source of that force is the color charge, which is not depicted in this table of the quarks. Each of these quarks has three charges, comes in three varieties, which we call color. And finally, the weak force, whose quanta of the weak field and mediators of the force are these heavy photons, Z and W, and the weak force 
flips one kind of quark into another or an electron into a neutrino and therefore that causes radioactivity or the transmutation of elements. The forces we understand a lot better than the matter content of the universe. The forces are indeed consequences of a local symmetry. I can't, don't have time to explain it, but in effect by assuming, deducing that the world is symmetric under rotations in the space of these labels, uh, we can deduce these forces and explain their behavior. Uh, the differences between these different forces is minor. They're all the same kind of force. They're all based on this local symmetry principle. They're all generalizations of the first discovered force of this nature, electricity and magnetism. Except in the case of electricity and magnetism, there's one kind of charge, the electric charge. In the case of the weak force, there are two kinds of charge. And in the case of the strong force, there are three kinds of charge. One, two, three. That's the standard model. And I told you a bit about how one important component of the standard model arose here at Princeton, and a bit about its nature and some of the strange features of quantum field theory, which survived all the attacks on it so far. So that takes us to the end of today's lecture. And tomorrow, I will go beyond the standard model to questions and speculations. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Gross. Uh, we do have, will you take questions? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have people, uh, two students with microphones. Uh, by the way, I, I forgot to mention that tonight's lectures were co-sponsored by the Princeton University Press. And uh, there will be a book, I hope, uh, in, in a few months based on these lectures that you can read. So, yeah. Is there an interaction between the energy in a proton amongst the quarks and the environment? What happens at absolute zero to that energy? Um, is there, at, well, at, there are two questions there. I think this was off the whole time. At absolute zero, um, the temperature is, is, is just a measure of the average kinetic energy of, of, a, of a system of atoms or particles. At absolute zero, you're just at the lowest energy state. Now, as I indicated, because of quantum fluctuations, in a sense, that doesn't mean 
you shouldn't think of this in the static way you might think of absolute rest or no motion. Um, there, and the other part of your question had to do with forces between the quarks and the environment. Well, you see, within the nucleus, you have these incredibly strong forces between the quarks, which bind them together to form an object which is neutral, color neutral. So the force then between a proton, one proton and another, or a neutron and a neutron, is therefore somewhat weaker because the color forces sort of balance out. There is an, a remaining force, which is, which in fact is what holds the nuclei in the, together in the nucleus. It's a pretty strong force. It's responsible for nuclear fusion, nuclear attack, uh, the A-bomb, nuclear fission, and so on. Um, however, it's a, it's a force that falls off rapidly with distance. It's not this color force. It's more like the force between two neutral atoms, which we call a van der Waals force, falls off rapidly with distance. And you don't feel it outside the nucleus. So you get a little bit outside the nucleus, you don't really feel, luckily, you don't feel this enormously strong force. So you said it, it used to be a perfect. You said it used to be a perfect theory, so what made it imperfect? <laughs> The question was, uh, you said QCD used to be a perfect theory. Why is it still not perfect? Well, our, the criteria of perfection change with time. You get used to a certain level of perfection, you want more. Even uh, I lied a bit to say that QCD has no adjustable parameters. There's the number three. Why are there three colors? Now, if you're interested in questions like that, the theory isn't perfect because it doesn't tell you why there aren't three colors. We could imagine that there would be two colors. We wouldn't exist. Then we might go into the improper principle. But anyway, or five colors, or 17. Uh, QCD is not going to answer that question. And then, of course, it's not perfect because there's all the other facts of nature, like gravity and the weak force that aren't part of it in the same perfect way. And then there's the other arbitrary facts of the world that we might find disturbing even if we didn't know about gravity, like why, why are there three dimensions of space and so on. So well, over the years, one standards of perfection evolve and become more demanding. And by today's standards, QCD isn't perfect. But by the standards of 1965, it's a perfect theory. Thank you. Does it seem to you that the universe has revealed itself uh, through chance 
That's an interesting question. Um, the question was, uh, is our understanding of the universe a, con- a dict- an historical accident? And um, could have it evolved, evolved differently or even looked differently uh, under other historical circumstances? Uh, well, in a, in a um, coarse-grained sense, absolutely not. Nature is, there's reality out there, one reality, and we probe it, discover it. In a microscopic sense, the way we get to the truth is, I think, uh, partly historical, and you could have, you could easily, looking back at the historical record, imagine many shortcuts, mistaken directions, people went down, forceful people with the wrong ideas so they delayed progress, etc., etc. One could have easily gotten to the one truth and the one reality in many different roads. But whether they're different uh, realities or, or different equally viable um, descriptions of reality, I, I don't believe. I don't even believe, by the way, that, there, that that's uh, the case in that's true even in the case of mathematics, which seems to some to be even more of a human creation than, than an actual reality. Uh, so it would seem to me that if we do an experiment to test your question, we communicate with an extraterrestrial civilization, and we ask them, well, first we ask them, what is string theory? Then? <laughs> but then, um, then we, once they've told us about we've established communication. We asked, we, we asked him your question. How, what is the history of their their history of ideas? Did it was it roughly parallel to our history of ideas in physics and in mathematics? Personally, I would bet uh, that coarse-grained, in human terms, at least over a hundred-year scale, the intellectual histories would be pretty parallel. I could be wrong. In, in your final description, you, you, it reminded me of a, of a comment of Descartes who did not believe in atomism because he... Who did not what? Uh, Descartes, yes. who did not believe in atomism because he conjectured that if there were some small hard thing, no matter how hard or small it was, God could break it apart. or if I substitute for God an accelerator, then, any, then it could be broken apart. I was, I was brought to that thought when you were describing how much of the mass of a particle is in fact kinetic energy and how little is in fact mass. And I wonder, does there have to be any mass? <sighs> Well, again, this question can be broken into many parts. Um, Descartes, you know, Descartes was right and wrong. It certainly has been historically true that uh, man, not God, is able to break every particle so far discovered into smaller subparticles 
and discover another layer of uh, understanding. Tomorrow you'll see an alternate way out of that conundrum. Um, and But that has been true over the years. Um, the second part of your question refers to a distinction that, you know, I, it's hard for me to explain in a few words. Uh, I describe the, a particle called the proton, right? The, par, the proton is whose mass was, como, under, was composed mostly out of the kinetic energy of quarks and gluons. And uh, that is a very useful description of the proton because we do understand it to be a composite, a, a, a complex object that is, is best understood and pictured and quantitatively successfully as a composite of elementary particles, quarks and gluons. Um, so that's great that we can understand in sort of these simple atomic atoms, quarks and gluons. They so far are elementary constituents in the traditional sense. And whether they can be understood at a deeper level is something we'll talk about tomorrow. But the progress of this atomic hypothesis in, for, a lot, for centuries now has been uh, doing exactly what Descartes said, but not waiting for God to do it, doing it ourselves. Not the no the pro, we we look at the proton. You you are made out of protons. The proton, its mass comes from the kinetic energy of the stuff that makes it up. The stuff that makes it up is essentially massless. If we don't care about a tenth of a percent, you could you could ignore the masses of the quarks. So you're made out of massless stuff that's held together by these forces. So moving around, that gives it energy, and your mass is simply the energy of that object divided by c squared. Does there have to be some mass? No. Not for... There happens to be. It's an embarrassing experimental fact. <laughs> but, but there doesn't, wouldn't have to be. In a world in which the quarks were massless, and the gluons were massless, and there was no mass of any of the elementary particles we've so far identified, the things that at this stage are the point-like things we build everything else out of, you would still weigh what you do now. You wouldn't lose any weight. Maybe we should... Uh... Sorry? How do you have kinetic energy in a massless particle? It has to go to infinity. No. It does go to infinity. It goes at C, the velocity of light. All massless particles are driving. However... You can, well, <laughs> the point is they're not, they're not, see part, well, this is going to take us quite long down a road. The quarks, were they to escape, would be massless particles. But they can't get out because they're being held inside. So you can't really ever describe them as freely moving particles. But were they to get out, and when viewed in these experiments over short distances, 
So, you know, when you use these microscopes, the slack accelerator, you go in and you look at a quark over distances of 10 to the minus 15 centimeters, and you measure its velocity, and it's moving with the speed of light in a straight line. Now, then it gets pulled back because you saw that force that pulled it back. You saw the picture. So then it's, it's, and then, but while we can look at it, these very short distances, you can, in fact, measure its mass. Or you could. Maybe we should postpone the other There's some great questions. Or you can. I'm willing to go on as people are also free to leave. the technical staff and so on. So. No, no, that's right. So you can come up here and. Uh, <laughs> okay. You know, 